0: Hi, it's Dr. Reese E. Lewis dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adara Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills Small Actions Big Impact. It's a business self help book coming in 2024 by HarperCollins. Pre order now Microskills Small Actions Big Impact wherever you buy your books.
1: The reality is that we have a general assembly that even though it's more diverse, call it in terms of gender or in terms of ethno-racial identity, is overwhelmingly made up of people who grew up either middle-class or above. And so these folks are blind to this. They don't know. They never had to live off of welfare. They never had to eat off of food stamps. They never had to live in subsidized or Section 8 housing. So they have no idea what that experience is like. And even worse, because our social spaces and our networks are so dictated by our position within an economic system they don't even know anybody (laughs) that grows up or lives in that condition so they don't have an understanding and that's one thing that's kind of blown my mind about politics i went in thinking that they were kind of good and bad people that's partly true but there's also a lot of people that are just ignorant or blind to particular experiences or issues and unless you have folks from those backgrounds or or people in that situation in the ear of lawmakers, and they're going to completely miss those issues.
0: This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. And in today's episode, I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with Rhode Island State Senator, Jonathan Acosta, or as he likes to be called, Acosta. I asked him, is it Acosta or Acosta? He said, whatever you want, Risa. So I'm going with Acosta. It harkens back to his days as an athlete. And Risa, as a soccer player, can identify. Let me read to you a little bit about him. Jonathan Acosta is a Democrat representing District 16 in Central Falls, Pawtucket in the Rhode Island Senate. A former member of the Central Falls City Council, he was elected to the Senate on November 3rd, 2020. His time in the legislature has included actions on issues including law enforcement, education, and health care. And guess what? You will hear about all of these in our conversation. Let's get to it. Part of your growing up and living experience is Central Falls, Rhode Island, also in Miami, Florida. And I'm wondering if you can briefly walk the listeners through your geographic lifeline.
1: <laughs> it's pretty complicated. So I was I was born in in Jackson Heights, Queens, a Colombian enclave dating back to the 70s and 80s. So my mother had just come to the US, my father had recently come a few years prior. They met, they had me. Shortly after, my parents split up and my mom went to another Colombian enclave in the Northeast, which was Central Falls, Rhode Island. Here, the community dates back to the mid-1960s when three weavers were brought over from Barranquilla to work in some factories in textile manufacturing here in Rhode Island. So we spent a little bit of time here. My mom hated the cold weather, couldn't stand it. And so she chose to relocate to South Florida. During our first year, she actually sent me to Medellin to live with my grandmother. So this is why I, I speak, write, and read Spanish fluently. Uh, my grandmother was a, a school teacher. And so I did one year of school at a <laughs> private Catholic school. Came back uh, once my mom finished the l- nursing vocational program and then kind of grew up in Miami, came of age and had my formal public education in Miami.
0: That's a perfect segue for me to bring up. You're growing up and you were an Eagle Scout. What was your Eagle Scout project?
1: <laughs> my Eagle Scout project was actually a food drive. At Brown when I was a freshman. And so I was a little bit younger than most people in my freshman cohort. I started college at 17. I had been a Boy Scout since I was six, but didn't finish. I, I didn't finish my, my Eagle project. And my scoutmaster, who had been kind of a surrogate father figure to me for a long time, called me as a, as a freshman and said, Look, you know, he had stayed on in order to usher the last folks who had started with him to the, the Eagle rank. And so he didn't quite nag me, but he said, look, you're so close to finishing. All you have to do is finish this project. I only stayed on because of you. His two sons were older and they had finished before. So I said, all right, I got to figure something out. And I think even at that age, I, I recognized how different Brown was from the rest of Rhode Island. I had, as I said, spent some time in Pawtucket and Central Falls as a kid. My uncle was still living in Rhode Island. And so I was all of a sudden surrounded by wealth and abundance And we had these kind of meal credits and you could swipe and you could get snacks and people with more resources would have way more stuff. And so I figured I could put on a food drive and have the kind of surplus food that we had access to at Brown and donate that to the Rhode Island Food Bank. So we collected over 500 items of food and donated them to the Rhode Island Food Bank that year. So that was my... Fall of 2007, my freshman year at Brown, that became my Eagle Project. But the cool thing was that after completing that and after I kind of walked away, somebody actually hit me up the next year. And I think now they do a version of this kind of yearly food drive where they donate food items that aren't being used by undergrads to the Rhode Island Food Bank, which is a cool kind of legacy to leave behind.
0: You know, I often ask my guests their legacy, and without even trying, without even asking, you just shared with the audience, part of your legacy, but your legacy is still going. And it just perhaps started with a little bit of a step there. So while in college, you studied political science and ethnic studies, you went on and did some master's work in urban education policy, sociology, and now you're pursuing a PhD in sociology. What are you focusing your
1: work on? My dissertation is a community study of Central Falls, actually. One of the things that I'm trying to look at is why people migrate to economically declining post industrial cities in cold and expensive parts of the United States. And so, in the post industrial era, in the second half of the 20th century, we saw a lot of cities kind of become these Rust Belt towns and communities, and many of them suffered population loss, a lot of social dislocation associated with the loss of jobs and and the declining economy in those areas. But this very fascinating thing has happened in, in places like Central Falls, and there's some other small cities across the Northeast where we're seeing something similar, where migration... Mostly from foreign born folks, some domestic migration, but mostly foreign born migration starts to offset the population decline and, in some ways, to start to stabilize the trajectory of of those communities. There was an article in the Washington Post a few weeks back about Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh kind of trying to frame itself as an immigrant friendly place to try to attract folks to migrate there, to settle there, to open new businesses and small businesses there, to start their lives there. And so I think that. Central Falls is, is a great place to, to carry some of that out. As I said, from 1950 to 1980, there was pretty consistent population decline. And from 1980 on, there has been modest population growth, in large part driven by foreign born folks. And so I want to study what's happening to those places, but also what's happening to those people. You know, I happen to be a member of this community that we think of today as Hispanics or Latinos, uh, but that's a very recent construct. You know, we're talking about people from over 20 countries, separate, distinct countries with their own histories, who in the U.S. are seen kind of as all the same. They're they flat and they're homogenized. And I think there's power to being part of this broader pan-ethnic group, but we also need to understand how people come to see themselves as part of that and what that means to them. And then to, to politics, really, which is one of the <laughs> things that I'm kind of both living and studying at the same time.
0: Yeah. And you've made reference to this pan-ethnic solidarity in Rhode Island, among Puerto Ricans, Colombians, Dominicanos, Cubans, and then Rhode Island's idiosyncratic, well, in many ways, but certainly in this way. And I'm wondering if you can go a little deeper into that.
1: At the simplest level, you know, some of it is about a numbers game. And so I argue in, in my academic work that when we use the term Latino politics or Hispanic politics, that it's often a misnomer for a single ethno-national group in power. So if you look at South Florida, you're looking at really Cubans. If you're looking at New York, it was Puerto Ricans for a long time, and now more so Dominicans. Other parts of Connecticut and Massachusetts, it's, it's mostly been Puerto Ricans. Chicago and then pretty much everywhere else, it's, it's Mexicans, right? And so those are the folks that are in power. And they often have support from a broader pan-ethnic base, but it's almost always a single ethno-national group that rises to power. In Rhode Island... In some part, because of the the smaller numbers, in other ways, because of the lessons that the pioneers here learned from those other sites. They've been very intentional about fostering and developing a pan ethnic Hispanic Latino politics identity so that there's never been one single group that's been in power. I mean, today, demographically speaking, Dominicans are probably the largest group in the state. But when you talk about Latino politics, there's never been a this is. A Dominican game. This is a Puerto Rican game. This is a Colombian game. It's almost always from its inception had people from the various ethno-national groups at the table. And that's been really, really awesome to see here in the state. Yeah.
0: You have spoken often of the bootstrap myth. And one of my guests and friends is another emergency doctor, Dr. Alistair Martin. And he has gotten this as well, that when he goes back to where he grew up, all his friends are not where he is in terms of being a professional and academic at Harvard. And I'm wondering if you can kind of give a little definition and also why it is a myth and why we need to change the culture and the education around this.
1: Sure. So so the myth quite simply is just that if you work hard enough, then you will be successful. And I think the ways in which this kind of fosters a false consciousness, it kind of de-radicalizes both the people who don't make it, and the people who do, in part because it suggests that all failures or any failure is your fault and any success is also your fault. And there are some theorists who would argue that in order for a system to kind of bolster its legitimacy, it has to let somebody through. So it can't just be that nobody from the working class or nobody from the lower class can ever Rise up, right? You, you got to have a few Gatsby's in there. <laughs> and when you go to a place like Brown, I think that growing up, I really believed the bootstrap myth and in this kind of individualist pursuit of, of success. And, you know, when I w- got some of your questions, I was reflecting on being a freshman at Brown. And one of the things that I remembered was attending TWTP. Uh, this is a third world transition program, an orientation program for essentially students of color going into Brown. And I did my first privilege walk there. And I was the second to last person in the privilege walk. I don't think I would be there today, given kind of all the privilege I've accumulated in my time since. But it was a a very stark reminder that I was one of very few people from my similar demographic background. And regardless of efforts of universities to let a few of us in, the overwhelming majority of folks at institutions like Brown and places like it come from very privileged backgrounds and are simply just reproducing their starting point. And so most people end up in the same socioeconomic class as their parents. There's very little mobility or slippage really, because that's that's the other fear, right? People are like, oh, well, you know, wealthy folks are gonna be upset or upper class folks are gonna be upset. No, like most of what we see is is kind of social reproduction. So you're you live in the class that you were born into and you reproduce that via education, via job, prestige, and status. And so I realized very quickly that I was being turned into this kind of pawn in that broader game of people being able to look at other young people in my community and say well you didn't make it because you didn't work as hard as as Jonathan did or you didn't make it because you didn't want it as bad as Jonathan did but there was only one spot <laughs> for me and there were tons of people who were equally as talented who just weren't as lucky or maybe didn't have one you know maybe they weren't a boy scout or they weren't a captain of three sports teams or something like that right so but those things shouldn't alone dictate whether or not you have an opportunity to be in a space like this um, but the seats are are limited and the number of people from A background like mine that are going to be admitted is going to always be very low.
0: What's a privilege walk?
1: A privilege walk is where um, you start with everybody in a line and then you start asking questions. So you say something like, step forward if you grew up in a home that your parents owned. Step backwards if you ever had to move out or you ever had your utility bill, you know, your utilities cut off because you couldn't afford to pay the bill. And so you kind of step forward based on things that would give you privilege and you step back based on markers of not having privilege. And so at the end, you kind of see the spread of where people end up and kind of how they grew up and what privileges they've had or not had.
0: I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis, dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adair Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills: Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book being published in April of 2024 by HarperCollins. We believe every future goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that you can practice and then excel by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. You can pre-order it now. Go to bookshop.org, amazon.com, or wherever you buy your books. You've described yourself as a public-facing academic, and relatedly, you are a Rhode Island state senator, and in some of your campaigns that I've watched, that I've listened to, you talk about a focus on how we care about poor people in this country as well as in this state, meaning Rhode Island, and about the Rhode Island housing crisis and how to address it. Say more.
1: I would say we don't care about poor people in this state or in this country. We hate poor people. Even poor people hate poor people, in part because of the bootstrap myth we were talking about earlier though, right? And so poor people are seen as the product of their own actions rather than the victims of of their circumstances in a system of inequality. And so it's often the case that the loudest voices are the ones that, that get heard. And Poor people have so much on their plate. Working class people have so much on their plate that it's really hard for them to exercise agency and voice, especially in the political space, relative to some of their more affluent peers. And so an example that I'll often use that really blew my mind, given that I benefited from many social programs, was that when I came into the General Assembly in 2020, we hadn't raised the Rhode Island Works cash benefit allowance, monthly allowance, in over 10 years. Now for those folks unfamiliar, this is what in the old school days we used to call welfare, right? So you get a welfare check if you're very poor, right? And in the state of Rhode Island, for a family of three, usually it's, it's a mother with two kids, they were expected to live off of $550 a month in the year 2020. That's criminal to I don't know a single person who could live off of $550 a month. But the reality is that we have a general assembly that even though it's more diverse, call it in terms of gender or in terms of ethno-racial identity, is overwhelmingly made up of people who grew up either middle class or above. And so these folks are blind to this. They don't know. They never had to live off of welfare. They never had to eat off of food stamps. They never had to live in subsidized or section eight housing. So they have no idea what that experience is like. And even worse, because our social spaces... And our networks are so dictated by our position within an economic system, they don't even know anybody <laughs> that grows up or lives in that condition. So they don't have an understanding. And that's one thing that's kind of blown my mind about politics. I went in thinking that they were kind of good and bad people. And that's partly true. But there's also a lot of people that are just ignorant or blind to particular experiences or issues. And unless you have folks from those backgrounds or or people in that situation, in the ear of lawmakers, and they're going to completely miss those issues.
0: As a part of sociology too in college, I remember reading a book, Blaming the Victim, and you have cited this many times in the conversation so far. Also, relatedly, on The Visible Voices, we spoke with Marquita Morris-Louis, and she also is a Brown graduate, and we talked about not wealth, but asset, and gaining assets to have socioeconomic mobility and how this country's poverty programs don't give an off-ramp. In other words, if you make too little, you might be eligible. But if you start making too much, you're no longer eligible. And so actually, poor people in this country are caught. They're stuck.
1: Yeah, it's awful. And again, I think most people, by virtue of kind of our economic (laughs) distribution, don't understand what it's like to be poor. Don't understand what it's like to have those constraints on your time right there are sociologists who work on time how long does it take you to navigate the healthcare system right because you don't have a car so you have to figure out public transportation and you don't have private insurance you're on state medicaid insurance and so you have to be at a provider that has these really long lines and that has the not most engaging staff and personnel one of the things i joke about i used to joke about this on the city council a lot and you know you commented on kind of my appearance is that Folks often don't know what position I hold, whether it be an elected office or that I have, you know, three college degrees and the fourth one on the way. And so they'll treat me the way they treat everybody else. And that's very telling. You know, I had a serious issue in trying to identify a pediatrician for my son when my firstborn, because the clinic that we wanted to go to wouldn't let us meet. A pediatricians ahead of time. And you can't leave the hospital unless you've picked a pediatrician. And so obviously, you know, we were told this is a marketplace. You can choose a doctor, but you can only choose a doctor if you can meet the doctors. And this particular clinic, their staff was treating me the way they treat the other poor people that they serve, right? And again, I didn't tell them who I was at that time. I just wanted to meet a pediatrician. And Eventually, I had to reach out to the medical director of the facility and say, look, do you know that this is how your staff treat people? They obviously had no idea. You know, they they have a complete disconnect. And this is what I was alluded to before, where everybody hates poor people, including working class people who interface with poor people. And that's a really hard thing to like grasp. And you can only know that if you've experienced it. And you can only experience it if you've been there. And because I've kind of traveled between these spaces now... It's allowed me to kind of see the world from the other side. The most famous, I would argue, sociologist in the US, W.B. Du Bois talks about this veil, this experience of living behind a veil that's informed by the color line. And I I think there are a lot of parallels between that and what it's like to be low income and come out of that, but still understand that experience and still see the world from these two different um, shades of this veil and outside of the veil.
0: Acosta, when did you realize you had a voice and when did you start using that voice? (laughs)
1: probably when I was three years old, (laughs) they were doing a talent show and they said, you know, we want somebody to introduce it. And I signed up. I said, I'd I'd be happy to speak. And I got the hiccups because I was so nervous. And I started chastising the audience. I said, listen, I'm three years old up here speaking in front of all these people. If you don't like it, one of you come up here and speak. There's a a video recording of this somewhere. Someone has this on an old uh, camera recorder, but I don't know. I, I think that from when I was a kid, I always kind of questioned authority, I I questioned injustice, and I think some of that is very natural to children, but I was an only child, my mom was 18 when she had me, and so we spent a lot of time talking. And so (laughs) I was conversing from a very young age and just asking a lot of questions to the point that my, my family was very devout Catholic. I have two great aunts who are missionary nuns, they're still alive today. On my other side, I have a great great aunt who's the first saint in Colombian history, But I had so many questions about this this religion thing that my mom took me to a priest and he came out after like 30 minutes and he was like, Christina, I've never met a kid like this. I I don't know what to do, but I'm sorry. (laughs) So I I think I've just always had that in me.
0: And what made you determine that you wanted to use this voice in politics?
1: I grew up really angry. My uncle and I talk about this a lot. He's chosen to use uh, mindfulness as a way of centering himself. And, you know, in my anger, I felt like I didn't want anybody in a situation like mine to have to go through the same things that I had gone through or seen. And so I wanted to do anything within my power, particularly from a policy domain, to help people in that situation. And I'm, ironically enough, not a big people person. I don't really like interfacing with folks. I would rather do things kind of behind the scenes. And I think public policy allowed me to do that. Right. So we've talked a bit about healthcare in the state of Rhode Island. In the late 90s, early 2000s, Rhode Island was super progressive in that its Medicaid program for health insurance for low-income kids in particular, for youth, included everybody, including undocumented kids. And then in the late 2000s, early 2010s, because of budgetary pressures, a very conservative governor stripped undocumented kids of healthcare. It took us almost a decade to get that back. And one of the things that I would think of often was my own life was saved by state-subsidized healthcare. I had uh, an AFib ablation when I was 10 years old because I had access to Florida Healthy Kids, which was the Florida version of Medicaid. And so we paid hundred dollars for life-saving surgery for a congenital heart defect that I was born with. Right. And the only difference between me and a kid who would have been ineligible in Rhode Island was where my parents had sex and I was born. And that was enraging. That was frustrating. That, you know, made me very angry. <laughs> and so I tried to use my anger as productively as possible to change the conditions for people in those situations.
0: Can you give us an example of positive change you've been able to succeed in through state politics?
1: Sure. I mean, one of the ones that I just mentioned, right, the cover all kids legislation was big, and that was something that the caucus was pivotal in in getting passed. I had a bill on body cameras, body-worn cameras for law enforcement officers. And so my first year, that was probably the biggest bill we passed. It was like a $14 million budget item that included that, that would equip every patrol officer in the state of Rhode Island with a body camera. And there were pieces that we wanted to push a little bit harder on that that we didn't quite get on things like video release and and so on. But it it was a, a big step forward. There was another bill as we talk about healthcare. So I have my oldest cousin from my uncle was born with, with Down syndrome. And so his younger brother, who's about two years younger reached out to me and realized that we didn't have state protections against discrimination for organ transplants and folks with disabilities. And so we started working together, me and, and my cousin to to pass this bill that would become law and it's called Isaac's Law. It's named after my cousin Isaac, which was, which was really cool. So that was really exciting. But some of the other things include raising the, the cash benefit. So I, I happen to serve on the finance committee and, and we had a champion for that on our committee, Senator Murray out of Woonsocket, who said, hey, I've been working on this issue. Do you? And as I kind of mentioned, I was blind to it before. I, I didn't realize that we hadn't made a, a move in 10 years. And so as we were working through the budget process, going to the chairman and saying, hey, this is one of my top priorities. You know, th- this is being put on by a colleague of mine, but we, we really need this in this state. Another one, I, I listened to your episode on food is medicine, and we have a pilot program called Eat Well, Be Well, that is supposed to be providing SNAP beneficiaries with 50 cents extra per dollar spent on fresh fruits and vegetables. Now, this program was approved two budgets ago, and it was supposed to start in January 2023, and we still haven't started. So we're a year late. We got a launch date for January of next year, of 24. but. You know, this is something that as inflation has been hitting families and food is becoming more expensive, this is $25 a month of extra food that they could have been accessing for the last calendar year that they didn't. And so we've been very much looking forward to getting this off the ground and pressuring the administration to get this going to support folks so that they have access to food.
0: For listeners that aren't familiar with SNAP, can you just give a little brief def?
1: Yeah, this is, this is old school food stamps. So uh, now I think it goes by the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. I don't know why the government loves changing these names, but we know what it is. This is food stamps. So what this program was supposed to do was provide up $25 a month extra of food stamps based on how much healthy food you bought. So the idea was to kind of nudge families and say, hey, for every dollar you spend on fruits and vegetables, you get 50 cents back up to $25. That's $25 extra food that you have for that month. If folks don't know... Uh, food stamps today come in a, in a card. It's like a prepaid debit card. And once you hit your max, that's it. You can't buy anymore for that month.
0: Of what award accomplishment are
1: you most proud? Ooh, that's a tough question. You know, something I miss, and, and maybe it's a, I'm a little nostalgic right now, but I miss coaching wrestling. And so I enjoyed coaching that a lot. I, I won assistant coach of the year one year here in Rhode Island. And um, that was really cool. I had to stop, one, because I had kids. So my first son, <laughs> I had on the wrestling mat when he was like eight weeks old. But then when well, my second son was born and I was starting in the general assembly, the timing was just really tough because our session runs January through June and the high point of the season is January and February. And you can't be a good coach if you're not around. You, It's, it's really important to build relationships. And so I miss coaching a lot, but I got a copy of, the EACA bill, the Equality and Abortion Coverage Act bill, because it was towards the top of my priority list. And I was born to a a teen mother who, who had a choice, who was born... or I was born during a period where women had a choice. And so my mom contemplated that choice, made the choice to have me, but I couldn't imagine a world in which she was forced to have me. I don't think it's appropriate for men to be governing what women can do with their bodies. And so I had fought really hard for the EACA to pass here in Rhode Island. And it was very fortunate that that we did and that we have that now in state law. So it's actually behind me. The three bills that I have copies of are the EACA bill. We passed a bill to build a new high school in the city of Central Falls. And there's one other one. but So that's kind of like an accomplishment. I don't know if it's an award, but <laughs> I was very proud of that on the legislative side.
0: For listeners that are wondering, curious, thinking they want to dip their toe into politics, what would you advise? Hmm.
1: I would say start local, right? So there's that old idiom, all politics are local. I was very anti-state government. And the way that I was drawn in was by just being in my community. And so I, I used to go back probably for 10 years after I graduated high school every June to speak to the class of seniors that was about to graduate. I was in the IB program and we had a class called Theory of Knowledge. We had an amazing teacher who recently retired, Ms. Scott, who would let me come in and talk to her students. And one of the things I would tell them all the time was everyone has some kind of, of gift or talent that they can share with the world. And in some cases, it's, it's very easy and obvious, right? You're a doctor, you could provide healthcare for folks without a lot of resources. I was an educator. I could provide tutoring or at the time I'd I'd worked in the Overtown Youth Center in Miami as a second job after my day job. But my point to them was being, there's something you can do for your community. And most of you are only here because of a community, right? And so how do you give back? And I think folks often think that's a financial thing, but you need to find a way that you are engaging with people. And I said before, I don't really like people that much, but I realized that it's an important part of the human experience. And so that's why I coached that That's why I worked at the Overtown Youth Center and integrating yourself into a community was always something important to me. And so when I started teaching, I wanted to live in the community where I worked. Uh, I wanted to take on an extra job and be a mentor in a community where I worked. And as I was doing that, I think people started paying attention. So I actually didn't go into to politics I think people noticed that I was being involved in the community. And then someone asked me if I wanted to be more formally involved. Then I joined the city council and kind of learned about municipal politics through two terms there. And then I ran for the general assembly in the state of Rhode Island. And, and I think the folks who have experience at a more local level bring that lens when they're making state policy. And there's a guy here in Rhode Island, I don't know if you're familiar with his name is Sam Zurrier. He's been involved in. In Providence politics for a long time, he's a senator now in Providence on the east side, but he was someone who served on the school board. He served on the city council, and now he serves in the general assembly. And you can tell the wealth of knowledge that he brings to the table. Well, He's also a Rhodes Scholar, so he's a pretty brilliant guy outside of the political realm. But that experience kind of shapes the way that he thinks about lawmaking and what the possibilities are.
0: The Risa Wrap-Up, special thanks to Acosta for joining me in conversation a conversation I enjoyed immensely. Three take-home points, audience. And I think hopefully you've gleaned these from our conversation. Number one, the bootstraps myth. We have to stop blaming the victim. We have to discard this myth. That's what it is. It's a myth. It's not reality. And the more we uphold this paradigm, the more we are doing injustice and a disservice to people. Number two, Acosta made very compelling arguments about the way we treat lower socioeconomic communities, people in this country. We can do better. We can start by stopping blaming the victim. Number three, access to education. All of us really, at the end of the day, want food, shelter, clothing, and education. And Acosta is one person who is using his education to make change, make change in government, make change through public policy, make change for healthcare, access to health care for the overall health and wellness of all communities. That's all I have for you this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare care, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Juliano Deporto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.